Great to be back with you guys. Half of you guys, I guess, most of us have already learned before, which is nice. Um, so Jackie asked me to do a post-Hanukkah Hanukkah review share. So, joking, Avi, relax. <laughs> um, so we're going to discuss Shovavim. The thing is, is that in order to discuss Shovavim, we run into a few issues here. Um, which is, again, I, I th- most of you are probably familiar with just the, the general outline of Shovavim, which is, we'll get to that in a second. But the problem with Shovavim being an intro to Purim is that in order to understand how it's a preparation or intro to Purim, you kind of have to have some level of an understanding of what Purim is to understand how we're leading into it. But in order to understand what we're leading, that process, we have to first start with the preparation. So it's kind of a catch-22, where to start and where to end. And in addition, I guess we have some faces here that we've discussed many of these concepts. We have faces here that haven't discussed these concepts. So what I've decided to do is to try to give a skeleton of the big picture of this timeline. And then hopefully we can add flesh in coming weeks or months. And hopefully you guys can add flesh in your own lives as you go through these parashios and as you go through these years. So I'm going to try to give a general f- f- skeleton, which some of, some of the points some of us may have discussed before. Some of them may be presented in different lights. But I guess the whole picture will hopefully provide something valuable to everybody. So I want to start by refreshing or discussing how we understand Yom Tovim in general. Because um, I think if we're going to discuss Shovim, if we're going to discuss Purim, or discuss this big timeline, it's obviously understanding that we're coming from the same perspective of what of what we were talking about of Yom Tov at all. And the thing about Yom Tovim, and again, we've discussed this, many of us, but the thing about Yom Tovim is that on the surface, Yom Tovim are extremely arbitrary, extremely random, silly, and almost pointless. Because So 2,000 years ago, thousands of years ago, the Jews happened to have been enslaved in Egypt, and guess what, guys? They ran away and ate crackers. So, yep. 2,000 years later, let's celebrate and let's eat crackers. Like, what, what's the connection of me eating crackers 2,000 years later to them having eaten crackers 2,000 years ago? There's no, nothing changes in their experience. My, grand, my great-great-grandparents in their graves aren't getting any pleasure because I eat crackers now. Or the Jews happen to have a, cell, a miracle on Hanukkah. The candles lit, lit, lasted for a long time. What's the relevance of me lighting a candle to commemorate that? The commemoration doesn't carry any value to it. And you go through each Yom Tif. I mean, Sukkot is my favorite, obviously. The Jews happen to have sat in huts at some point in their exodus of Egypt. So we are going to make an arbitrary timeline and say, Re'af Yom Kippur, let's sit in huts and let's wave myrtle branches. Like, what, what are we doing? So on the surface, Yom Tovim seem extremely arbitrary. They seem to carry very little weight. And as we discussed many times, a Yom Tif is not a day of commemoration, because if it was, it would be silly. Rather, a Yom Tov is a day of recalibration, meaning each Yom Tov contains and addresses a specific component that is essential to Jewish identity that a Jew needs to get in touch with and access and really, really stay in touch with on a yearly basis in order to have any shot at surviving and thriving as a Jew. And each Yom Tov comes to address a very specific thing that's different than the other Yom Tov. And by a Jew going through his, his yearly Yom Tovim, that Jew has now been able to really keep his identity in line and have access to what it means to be alive in the Jew. And again, so we talk about Pesach, we talk about freedom, we talk about Sukkot, we talk about other things. Each Yom Tov comes to address a very, very specific concept. Yeah? Many of you are ringing a bell? Okay. Now, what's the difference between a Dirabanan holiday and a Deraisa holiday? Now, because Purim is a Dirabanan holiday. It's not a Deraisa holiday. 
meaning it's, rabbinic, it's rabbinically instituted versus biblically instituted. So in terms of its essential requirement and need for a Jew to be somebody who is going through this experience and coming in touch with something, obviously it's no different one from the other. But in terms of the point in time when this became a requirement, there's a fundamental difference in that a biblical holiday, from the start of creation, the second man is created, there's a need. You need to come in touch with Chayrus on Pesach. You need to come in touch with Machos on Shana. You need to readdress these experiences on a yearly basis from the second there's something called creation. Rabbinic holidays are very different because there was no need for a Purim until something shifted in history. Once that shift happened, there's now a brand new need that's developed, and the Rabbanan have been given the power to step in due to the recognition and sensitivity and say, you need to address this concept now going forward. Here is the Amtif. Here's what you're going to do. So when we discuss Purim, we'll have to understand what shifted in Jewish history that now there's a requirement for Purim. But in terms of just zooming out and how we're going to understand Purim and how we're going to understand Yom Tovim in general, it's just essential that we understand that we're dealing with something that is fundamental, that is essential, that is integral to every one of us and every one of you, to your Jewish identity, your, under, your sensitivity. That's my roommate, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's essential that we come in touch with these experiences on a yearly basis because without doing this, <laughs> without, without doing this, we are, we are significantly handicapped and impaired people. Fine. Now the problem with something like Shovavim, and when we discuss Shovavim, is that Shovavim has no connection to any of that. Shovavim, for those that maybe aren't aware, Shovavim stands for, the letters of Shovavim are Shin, Vav, Beis, Beis, Yod, Mem, which stands for Shemos, Ve'era, Bo, Veshalach, Yerusha, Meshpatim. And in the 1400s, this idea came about, this is not, does not have any existence before that, as far as I'm under, I understand it's a, it's a relatively recent sensitivity that Jews have taken on, and we've given an association of these weeks as the weeks leading up from Hanukkah to Purim as preparation for Purim. Now, this is not rabbinic. This is not, this is not even Minogi Yisrael. This is a sensitivity that the Jews have taken on and chose to stay aware of. So if we're going to discuss this, it's important that we understand that it can only be a sensitivity that gives access to Purim, but it, it's not a standalone. Asaf, that's so rude of you. <laughs> um, sure. So, I, I'm just surprised. Like, Jackie, you knew for a week I was giving this shear and I didn't get any goods shipped to my house, you know? I feel like... Um, what, I, what I was saying was that understanding this framework of what Yamtif is and understanding that Shovim is a recent rendition that has come about it, it can't be, if Shovim is the weeks leading into Purim, it has to be understood from the context of its preparation and giving a sensitivity to Purim, not that it's a standalone separate from Purim. So if we're going to discuss it, it's always going to be looking forward to Purim. And those of you that, that we've learned together understand, we've discussed many times the idea of Purim and how central it is to the Jewish calendar and how it's one of the most serious and important days of the year and and especially me and Avi, we've had many talks about drinking on Purim and its place. Uh, this guy's had some good. This guy's had some good Purims. <laughs> so, and we'll hope maybe we'll discuss Purim before Purim in terms of what it is and how, why we drink and what we're doing. But in terms of Shovim, it's just all I'm all I'm trying to get across right now before we discuss these ideas of Shovim is it's important to see the context of how it fits in this timeline, which is it's a lead into Purim and is giving a sensitivity to Purim. Now, 
obviously to note on that, it's very important to ask is every yamtif has days before it, yet no yamtif has this idea that's re, that's developed for it. So you have to wonder, and we'll hopefully get an answer tonight, why specifically Purim does it get this period of Shovim that's attributed to the parashos that's leading into it? Like what, what what's what's the shaykhs here? Why is this why just get a special call out? Fine. So if we're going to deal with the idea of Shovim, it's important to just take what we're given, which is we're given that it's Shemos Eir Boba Shachir Samashpatim. Now, you've heard many Yom Tovim, you've heard many ideas before. Have you ever heard them give you six parashios, clump them together and give you an acronym? <laughs> Clearly there's something, something about these six parashios that we need to come to understand, some kind of theme running through them all, and this gamut that covers, that spans all six of them, will present something forward that you need to come in touch with. Now... What did you say? What did you say? The, the thing that is here from HBO, the next two parashas, also, like, how many aspects of Good question, Av. So, there's have, you ever heard of Shovim Tat? Yes, sir. So, Shovim Tat stands for the next two parashas, which is Truma Tisava, for that reason, because there's extra weeks added into those years. So, yes, we have, we have to understand how do those fit in, why do those fit in, but again, it's important to understand... Well, never mind. Let me leave that out. Yeah, those need to be incorporated in. Good? Okay. I want to discuss just the Shovim. Just, just, again, and let me give one preface to this, guys. Everything I'm about to say is things that I've thought and these things that I relate to. I'm not saying this is shot. There's definitely much more to uncover, and I encourage you to continue expanding thoughts that totally contradict what I'm saying. So, like, if I give a shot for Shovim, don't, like... Keep your heads on and keep your eyes open. It's just this is just my thought. This is what I've come to, and this is how, this is where I am at this point in my life. Okay, I just want to make sure that's very clear, especially you, Mister Goldblatt. <laughs> um, from when 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 you look through these six parashos, the the the, the, the development that goes on in these parashos, it's the Jews going to Mitzrayim, the story of Mitzrayim, the slavery coming to freedom. Which is Shemos Erebova Shalach, and then it comes to the leaving Egypt and getting a Torah. Mishpatim is a culmination of getting a Torah. So it's the timeline of going into slavery, journeying to freedom, culminating in a Torah. It's literally the becoming a people that now come, that are people with a Torah as a nation. So if you see the parshios that literally deal with the becoming a nation, coming a Jewish people, you would assume that something about this is giving access to what it means to be a Jewish people. What, it, what the Jews stand for, what the Jews are. Every Parsha before, every Parsha after are just the technicalities. These are the six that are the formation of a nation. So if we're going to take that as a framework and starting point, let's just keep that in the back, back burner, keep that in our minds, and we'll try to analyze these Parshas and try to see if we can develop something. So I want to... I want to just go through this Parsha a little bit and point out what I think will be a start to this discussion and really open up an idea that we can kind of walk forward with. So if you go to the, I don't know if any of you have Chumash or not, if you go to the beginning of the parasha this week, Shemos. So, the Safari boys. Okay. So the parasha opens up and it's describing the names of the people that are that are in Egypt. And then it, then it just gives a little summary. Pasuk Zayim. Uvnei Yisrael paru v'yishetu v'yibu v'yatzmu b'me'od me'od. And the Jews, they they increased, 
and they were crawling all over the place. They were multiplying. They were full of clout. They were full of pomp, excessively. The land was full of them. Now, the, the very next Pasek, so nothing was said other than that the Jews are a lot and they're very great. The very next Pasek comes Parah and says, oh, let's get rid of these Jews. The Torah has to be providing for us, it, ha- it has to be providing for us the understanding of what happened that led Parah to need to get rid of us. Why do the Mitzvah feel threatened by us? Why do the Mitzvah want to get rid of us? Does, does anybody see anything in these first six Pesukim, seven Pesukim that say anything? As an indication of why the Mitzvah want to get rid of us? What? We're a threat. Threat? Why are we a threat? Outnumbered? I don't know. I find it hard to believe that we're that many people compared to the Mitzvah. But okay, so let's say let's say we outnumber them. So if we outnumber them, let's go on. So what is what is what does Paro say to do? Paro says. Let's go through this whole process of pretty much degrading them. Let's debase them. Let's bring them into slavery and, and pretty much force them to go through hundreds of years of slavery. Why? If, if we're a threat, just kill us. What's this need to keep us alive and put us through slavery? Just kill us. Because we're good for their economy. I don't know. If we're a threat, I would assume that they want to get rid of us. But okay, maybe, we're, maybe that's the reason. Then goes on and go to Pasigid Bays. And this, I think, is something that's very important to note. So the Pasuk says, as the Mitzrim inflicted us, we continue to increase and continue to succeed. And the Mitzrim were disgusted from the Bnei Yisrael. What does Rashi say on that? They were disgusted with their own existence. They were, they were disgusted with their lives. How, did, how, did, how does that fall into this equation? The Jews are a lot of people. We're a threat. I think it was Asaf said we're a threat. So the Mitzrim want to get rid of us. Oh yeah, now you're Nechabibi. So they, so they want to get rid of us. Why does that lead them to feeling disgusted in their own existence? How does that, have any, how does that shed any light and any indication on their own lives? It shouldn't. But somehow it does. Okay. Last thing to note, and this I think is a start to everything. Who are these Jewish people right now? Who are they just in terms of the, the people that are there? They are... Right, the, the Torah starts off, opens up. These are the sons of, of Yaakov who came to who came down. It says Israel, but these are Yaakov's sons. They all died, and the rest of the Jews now are a bunch of people. So they're they're just the offspring of Yaakov and the Shatim, right? Are they a nation? Ah, well, look what Paro says. Look at look at Pasuk Tess. So Paro says to his nation, am Yisrael, the nation, the Bnei Yisrael." They're many, and they're assume they are very great. They're a lot of clout, more than us. H- how do we become a nation? When do we become a nation? We're not a nation. We're just random people. Let me ask the question differently. The Jewish people, if I were to ask you what makes the Jewish people, you'd say that when it's, a, it's the people that were given the Torah. The Torah doesn't happen for many, many parshios. There's nothing that's binding us as a people right now. We're just random offspring of a family who happened to live in a random land as strangers. On what grounds is Paro viewing us as a nation? Something here has to be clear that we are a nation. Now, if we can understand what it is that Paro, I would would assume that whatever it is that's leading to Paro hating us is probably what it is that leads to us being a nation. 
and it's probably what leads to them, them being discussed with their own existence. And if we can zoom that out, if we can figure that out, we'd have a lot better understanding of what it is that this entire slavery is about, this entire journey of becoming a nation. Something here Paro picks up as this is the Jewish people, and he identifies it, and he needs to eradicate it, and he needs to eradicate it in a way where he debases it first. He can't just let it be. He has to debase it first. And it makes them feel disgusted with their own existence. What is that thing? Well, the Torah tells us. Look at the Pasuk carefully. Look at Pasuk, look at Pasuk test. So Paro says, well, Paro says, let, let's, let's go back a second, actually. Let's go back a second. Pasuk Zion. The Bnei Yisrael are, if you read the words, you'll realize that it's presented in a way where you hear the disgust of the Mitzvah in the presentation. So the Bnei Yisrael, Paru Vayishretzu. They increase and Vayishretzu. Vayishretzu means like it's a word that, you, that the Torah uses for creepy, crawly, disgusting creatures. So the Jews are just like crawling all over the place like cockroaches. And they're excessive and they're great. And then listen to the passage closes. Osam. And the land is just full of them. Full of them? What do you mean? There's a lot of Jews. The, 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 they're, they're crawling over the place and the, the ground, the, the, the land is just full of these people. They're just full of them. It's putting in a very disgusting light. But then look at Pasuk test. And he says to his nation, Paro says to them when he's trying to get them on board to the issue, the nation of Bnei Yisrael, what, what's the problem here? Here's the problem. They are Rav V'yatsum Mimenu. That's it. That's the problem. They are Rav V'yatsum Mimenu. They are Many, we have to what Rav is, but more importantly, they are Tzum, they have this clout, they have this pomp, they have this grandeur, they have this status. And that's the problem here. That's what Paro highlights as a problem. Now, so I'm suggesting, and I'll try to bring some back into this, I'm suggesting that if we can understand what it is that they are, that's Atsum, that makes them outstanding, whatever that is, that's what Paro can't handle, can't stand, and leads him to need to eradicate them, and it leads him to feel disgusted with his own existence. Yeah, now you good? Yeah. Okay. Now turn back to when the Jews are told they're going to become a nation. Turn back to Perikid Ches, Pasikid Ches. In Beratius. So this is Hashem telling us how we're going to become... This is Hashem talking about how the Jews are going to become a nation. How Avram's descendants are going to end up in Egypt, but they're going to be a great nation. And listen to the words that Torah uses to describe it. Avram is going to be this great big nation, and he'll be atsum. He'll be he'll have a lot of clout. He'll be have a lot of grandeur. Have a lot of star status. And because of that, all the other nations are going to get blessed by him. And then it goes on and on, which means that whatever this idea of being someone that's outstanding, someone with a lot of pomp, someone with a lot of grandeur. That's what we're told is going to be the source of us becoming a nation. You turn here, that's the issue that Paro is identifying and giving them the nationhood. Which means, let's just zoom out a second. If we can understand what it is that gives the Jews this star status, separate and apart from the Torah, we could actually understand what it means to be a Jewish people. Because the Jews don't have a Torah. The Jews aren't living with the Torah. But the Jews are already a nation. And this leads to power needing to eradicate us. Now, we've discussed this before, 
and we've discussed Avram Avinu in this context over here, where all the tools and keys are given to us, and I think we actually discussed it in this forum on a Thursday night Mishmar at Zach Eisner's house, <laughs> his old house. So I will do a short Chazar of it, and somewhat also for the guys that aren't here, but because this is a, it's an idea that's need to be brought to surface to understand what we're going to try to get to for Purim. Let me just let me just zoom out and recap what we've been saying so far, just because I went into the weeds a little bit and I want to just zoom us out. We start off by just noting that clearly Shovim is going to be an introduction to Perm. And in terms of understanding Shovim, we need to understand what the common theme in these parashios are. And I pointed out it's somehow a development of becoming a nation that culminates in the receiving of a Torah. And I just then said, if that's the case, let's try to understand what is it that leads to us becoming this nation. Because that might be an indication of why we're focusing on these parashios in our preparation for Purim. And if we can understand what goes into making the Jews Jews, perhaps we can try to now zoom out and understand Purim and see if that allows for a preparation to Purim. Okay, we have not discussed Purim, and we probably won't discuss much of it tonight, but it's still important to get to the preparation ideas. So if you go back to this, this Yod Ches, Yod Ches, so we're told that we're going to become a great nation. And the reason is because we're going to have this, this, this clout, this grandeur. Now, the next passage tells us the next passage tells us what's going to give us that clout. The passage continues, Because I'm aware, says Hashem, that Avram is going to command, commission his children and his household after him, and they will all be Shomer the Derech Hashem. So somehow being Shomer the Derech Hashem, whatever that means, is going to be the thing that allows him to have this status. Now again, we've pointed out, and this is the passage we discussed, they don't have a Torah. What does it mean to be Shomer the Derech Hashem? And the word that we use to, under, to understand Avram Avinu's journey and what, what made Avram Avinu himself was that it says the word Derech here. To be Shomer, the path of Hashem. Why don't you just say he follows God's words? He follows God. What is this? He follows the path of God. And he pointed out that it's not just here that this happens. When the Ramam talks about free will and he talks about what a person's free will is, let me just get it actually, I want you to hear the language. That's Shuva Parak 4, I believe. Parak 5. Okay, so the Rambam, in, when he's discussing free will, Parak 5, in Hilchas Shuva, he says, every person, is giving, every person is given the opportunity, he's given free will. If he wants, he can put himself, L'derech Tova, to the path of good, L'yos Tzadik, and to become a Tzadik. Or if he wants, he can he can lean he can tilt himself to the path of evil, Vilios Russia and to be Russia. And we, we we noted when we discussed this, why don't you just say every person has free will, he can be a tzaddik or he can be a Russia? What do you mean you can be on the path of good, which is to be a tzaddik, or you can be on the path of bad, which is to be a Russia? Just say you can be good, you can be bad. What is this path component? And we noted that the idea of a path it's something very essential to discuss, and, we, and the way we got there was by coming from the opposite side. Avram Vinu was famous for going against idols. He was, he was famous for running around, trying to crash down idols, break them down. 
What was his fixation and hatred for idols? Who cares? And we discussed that, the, that idol worship has nothing to do with taking some random image and putting focus to it. Idol worship is pretty much shutting down your mind and staying extremely local. It's taking all your self-projections as the starting point as opposed to trying to expand yourself out. And what we were explaining by that was you don't allow yourself to see things in a united way outside of you. You see how you want to see it and you make everything its own God. So, oh, what is this? Oh, I want it to be this. So this is that God. And this is that God. And this is that God. And an idol worship really comes down to avodah zarah, which is service that is foreign from being connected to reality. It's going to be a... Am I, I'm just trying to refresh things that we've discussed. Am I being too vague? Yeah. What? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, Could you give an example? Uh, I'm going I'm to say in different words. My, uh, my roommate's wondering how we have a bunch of drinkers over here. So, like this. I missed something. Um, <laughs> so, when we, discuss, when we discuss idol worship, the biggest problem with living a life of idol worship is that you don't have to Go outside. Or let me let me come from the opposite angle. We'll come back to this. Let's talk about derech, the idea of path. Being on a, a path of good versus being good has a very, very, very big difference. One comes down to things. One comes down to context. If this is good and this is bad... Then there are things that are good and there are things that are bad, and that's what you do. If there's a path, and there are no things, it's always going to come down to context, but it's a path that's always going somewhere further. And you're always, as long as you're going in a direction, you don't care where it leads. You're just, you're continuing to traverse and things have to continue to go further. When, when, people, when people put... So use his words carefully. <laughs> what? Um, you're not going to believe me, so I'm not going to say it. <laughs> his name's Donnie. What's <laughs> uh, Rask is also, no. Uh, Donnie, Donnie Strauss, from, he's from, my friend from Baltimore. Sure. Benji Goldstein. From Baltimore. Um, the idea, the idea of, of approaching life with openness to wherever it leads, as long as it leads somewhere beautiful, is, is approaching it as a path where it's, it's leading somewhere and you don't care where it's leading as long as it's going. Whereas, and therefore we're going to refer to it as the, the path of Hashem, the path of good, because it's, as long as you're on a, going on a path, you, don't, you, you mamish don't care about any of the goals, any of the things. It's when you get caught up in fixations to things being 
the, the goal that you get stuck. Avodah Zarah is the opposite. It's very, very, very specific. And it's, it's self-projected. We use the words Avodah Zarah for anything that's to do with self-projection. So we say when somebody's anger, angry, they're, they're serving idol worship. When someone does promiscuity, they're in idol worship. Because it's all these things that remove your ability to see things outside, and it's totally, you're, you're, you know what I mean when I say self-projecting, but like f- focusing in as opposed to focusing out? Does that, does that speak to you, Avi? No? No? What? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. So I, I'm just trying to give words that speak to what I'm trying to say. Focusing out versus it needing to come and support the in. So it's self-projections. Self-projections is always just trying to support my local reality, how I want to see things, how I want to be. Versus an openness and a willingness to approach whatever it is, is letting it be defining outwards. Where, wherever it goes, I'm going to come with it. I don't care where it goes. And I'm not, I'm not projecting. I'm just following. Self-gratifying? No, not fulfilling. I wouldn't use that word. So just so Avodah Zara would be self-gratification. Yeah, Avodah will many times com- contain component self-gratification. It may, um, but it's more the sense of the non-Avodah Zara path is one where everything is is you're you're allowing yourself to be taken out of the default zones and out of the comfort zones and expand your starting point. You're allowing yourself to see things for what they are and not for what you want them to be or what you already know. Uh-huh. No, that didn't click. Um, I understand is that you're seeing things in pretty much objectively as opposed to from your own sense. Of- yeah, yeah, but I mean more than just objectively. I mean, when we talk about, and we've discussed this many times, we talk about the idea of context. And we talk about the idea of approaching life as a real opportunity to connect to something outside of you, however you relate to that, on whatever level, that is, you don't know where it's going to hit you from. You don't know what today is going to bring, but you're going to approach it with a lot of love. Versus, in an Avodah Zara world, which, mind you, maybe this is confusing, but many religious people, I would call living in that quote-unquote Avodah Zara bubble, where you have very self-projected walls, that this is what has to happen. I have to buy this esrog. Now, what happens if somebody else really nice and really wants that esrog? Are you going to give it to them? Or you have to have this and there's like this, like you almost, I mean, you feel this way all the time when you see stuff where like you feel like people lost the whole point of religion by being religious. Right? That's the idea on a conceptual level of what is our, where you have these self-projected walls that you stay within and you don't allow yourself to expand out of. Versus a world that allows to see a big picture, you don't have any walls. The only thing you care about is connecting to something real and, and outside and, and what we'll call life. And I'm using terms that I, I'm only using them because we've discussed them. But if they don't ring to you, then let me know. But right, these terms are terms that we've used many times together. So there's... What? Is there any specific reason that what is ours called Avodah? Sure. Sure. We have to talk about what Avodah is one time. It's not a coincidence that, that tefillah is called avodah, karbanos are called avodah. Sure. But let's, I don't want to go to a tangent like that. Um, but absolutely, avodah zar does not translate as idol worship. That's a false translation. It translates as doing avodah that is, that is strange to the real path. 
right? Zar means a stranger. It means someone that's foreign. Avodazar is just that which is off the right path. Idols just happen to be a great example of that. But, I mean, you, I, I learned a Gemara today talking about promiscuity being Avodazar. Because you're fully removed from that openness and connection outside when you're in a state of promiscuity. All you are is so stuck in your own head and what you want to be doing. You can't connect to anything outside on a real level. Is a back row following this? Because a, a back row has got some, uh, some, some newer faces to these discussions. Let me, let me, let me, let's, let's leave all the fancy talk out. Let me put it in two sentences in and, and, and a simplified way, and hopefully we can move with that. What I'm suggesting is that what Avram perfected and what the Jews were living with is a state in which they approached life as something extremely beautiful, something they wanted to really connect to, some they're extremely open to. That that clear? It was a willingness to approach it with whatever it brought on, and a desire to connect it to the biggest and the most rich life possible. We'll use those simple terms, and each person can put whatever understanding they have to those words. When we talk about being a Jewish people, the Jewish people are not people who have a Torah. The Jewish people are people that are committed, committed, committed through and through to achieving the deepest state of existence possible. This was the pre-existing relationship required to even get to be offered a Torah. The Jews existed before there was a Torah. The Torah is the culmination to that process. It's saying, we, you guys want to, to achieve and access this type of state? Well, let me, let me give you the greatest access point to that. The Torah is the climax the, the, the instructions that allow you to have the, the most direct access. But in terms of the, the approach, the lifestyle, the, the thing that you're going for, that's, that's the Jewish people. That's not the Torah. The Jewish people were given the Torah, but the Jews are the Jews. When the Mitzram see this, the Mitzram feel extremely threatened. It makes them disgusted with their own, with their own lives because they're not living on a, on a path like this. And when, you, when, you, when you're put face to face with something so real, so awe, so awesome, with so much awe and aura, and you're not there, you feel extremely, extremely self-conscious and threatened. And you're forced, you're forced to eradicate it. But you can't just kill them out, because then you've, all you've done, if you kill them out, is validate that they're right, and you're wrong. The only possible way to get rid of the Jews in a way that will make the Mitzvah feel okay with themselves is if they debase the Jews and make the Jews lose that awe status. So they're forced to debase them. Killing them wouldn't help. But of course they feel they feel disgusted with their own lives. So what I'm suggesting in terms of the storyline here, and then we'll zoom this out into the big picture, what I'm suggesting is that the Mitzvah sensed, the Mitzvah sensed the Jews in terms of their life, aliveness, their beauty, their commitment to life in a way that was so threatening to their own existence and they had the need to... to to smash that, to crush that. Now, if what we're saying is true, and this is what it means to be the Jewish people, let's now zoom that out a little bit. As I said, we're not going to get into a discussion of Purim tonight, but I want to give a three-sentence intro to Purim, and then maybe we can have a discussion before Purim about this stuff. But for those of us that have discussed Purim in the past, when we discuss Purim, what we've said that Purim is coming to address is Purim is coming to recalibrate 
a sensitivity to the opportunity of life as, as opposed to an approach of religion. And again, let me say it in different words. I do, not, I do not mean opportunity of life as in life is so great, look at the opportunity. That's not what I mean by opportunity of life. I mean, for those of you that remember, we, on Purim we dealt with the question of, of a mo. Maybe we should say this actually. <laughs> no? Uh, am I losing people or can I go into this? Okay. We discussed on Purim that that the question on Purim is Amalek's question. I'm going to make this short, but the, the, the question was Amalek's question, which is, they challenge all value of life. Because if life is a religious approach, here's the problem. You have, you have two options. Either God's involved, and if God's involved, by definition, there's no value in what I do because God's running the show anyhow. Or I'm running the show, in which case I have no access to God, so there's no value in what I do anyhow. Whichever side you're going to cut it, either you have free will and you make the choices, in which case there's no value, or God runs a show and you don't have free will, in which case, who cares what, you're just a robot. And again, when it comes to Purim, we'll discuss the answer to that question, how Purim comes to answer that. But on the simplest level, we, we, we answered is Purim comes to address that you're right if you view religion as a religion, but if you understand that it's the opportunity to sense life, it's the opportunity to be a Jew... Then, then this idea of this parashos, this idea of Shovim, is literally is mamish what Purim is. And of course, with that understanding, we'll, we'll make sense of why we drink in Purim. But again, we'll save that. But understanding this, guys, understanding this, I think, the way I relate to Shovim is that Shovim is a time period in which it's important to just become extremely, extremely sensitive to this difference on approaching religion as a doctrine Versus as an opportunity to access really, really, really being alive. And the beauty of life. And the beauty, the sensitivity towards it. And, and it's for this reason, by the way, that, that I think that Shovim precedes Purim, but no other holiday has this. Because Purim is not a yamtif like every other one. Every other yamtif, what, what we do on that yamtif is, we put ourselves into some kind of experience that allows us to, see, to, to access an experience we never had before. So you go through a Seder on Pesach, and you come in touch with Chayrus. You go through sitting in a sukkah and you come in touch with whatever you come in touch with. Purim is the opposite. Purim is not coming to something new. Purim is removing so you can have the old. Right? When we talk about drinking, we talked about how it's what allows you to unblock yourself and it's what allows you to remove the ego and remove all those things again, the way of being in touch with the self. And then you can just see that beauty. You can experience that life. If that's the case, again, I'm being very vague because I don't want to get into Purim right now. But for those I'm even Yavin, we can discuss it and come to Purim. But what I'm saying is, is that I think the preparation of Shovim is essential for Purim because Purim, you're not, Purim, whatever you show up with, that's what you're going to experience on Purim. You're not, there's no experience there that lets you add something. Purim is, it removes things so you can have whatever you have and what you really have. And I think that these weeks are the weeks in which you become very sensitive very acutely aware of how real life is, but not it's an important thing in life, but what, the, what we mean by the opportunity of life versus a doctrine of religion, and you understand what it means to be Jewish, what, what it means to commit to a life. And if a person has that awareness, you get to put them in, you're ecstatic, you're, you're bubbling, you, you can't wait to go to your Suda and drink. Because you get to that Suda, I mean, 
I see Avi smiling already, thinking about his last Purim. <laughs> because it's, it's, it's an extremely, extremely exhilarating opportunity. When you are aware of how awesome this is, how beautiful this is, how much is available, and you know that come Purim time, you're going to be able to taste it to its fullest. It's an incredible opportunity. So again, for those that do or don't feel like they feel comfortable with their understanding of Purim, my recommendation for these Shovim weeks is to open your eyes when you read the parashios. Try to stay aware of the little nuances that give you access and understanding to this idea, to what it means to become a nation, to what it means, not like on a theoretic level, but what it means to be, to be a person who's alive with a heart rate. What does it mean to be somebody walking the planet? And if you can understand that and you become sensitive to that, Purim's going to be awesome. So with that, my friends, we close. Sure. Are you asking, let me just make sure I understand your question. Are you asking if a person is looking outside of the world for connections, how does he not lose himself? Yes. Okay. Um, great question. The answer is twofold. Firstly, the first answer is he doesn't. By definition, yeah. it's risky. And also, I want to clarify what I mean by looking out. Looking out does not mean walking outside like this. And, and looking for things. Looking out, I mean, is having openness. Letting life present itself. Um, seeing things with a very open mind. Let me ask you this. When you're presenting an idea that's totally contrary to everything you ever understood in whatever given concept, does that threaten you or does that excite you? Obviously, excite. Obviously what? Excite? Liar. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you, because you're, you're a great man, Jackie. But I'm just saying, most people are given an idea. I don't mean you see a chazal that you know is crazy and you know there's an answer and like you never knew what it meant. I mean, for example, let me give you an example that happened to me. I had very, 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 what I thought was thought out and, and like from experience and from thought, views on the idea of promiscuity. And then I decided, my friend, to go through the halachas. Now, I view halacha as very serious, and I view that halacha is providing, like I always talk to you about, a halicha, a pathway to, to, to get to somewhere, to experience things. So if halacha is telling me something, this is going to be, this should be telling me what the, the best way to have the deepest experience of these things are, right? So the thing is, with, the, with this specific topics of promiscuity and of relationship, I thought I had very, very clear experiences, and, I, and I, my thoughts were really built off of that. And then I get to a halacha, that literally went against everything I've ever experienced. Everything. And I sat there wondering, am I crazy? Am I crazy? Like, this, like there's just no way to reconcile the two. 
And and like I'm not, I wasn't talking about something like I I thought I might have thought about. Like I had like serious thoughts built up on this experience, and like really was thought I was in touch with this experience. And I see Allah that undermined everything. What does a person in that position do? Let me give you another example. <laughs> I had, I have, I'm now 24 years old. I had probably my biggest, what I'll call existential crisis, this, yeah, this Aserius Meteshuvah, where everything that I understood about what it means to have a relationship with God, everything, I came up, I hit upon a question that I thought about that challenged everything of mine. Now, this is not like a question like, why do we have the 37th Malacha on Shabbos? This is the foundation of my entire life. And like everything I've ever talked to you guys about, everything I've ever done with myself, every choice I've ever made was predicated on this. And the whole thing was shattered. What does a person do in that position? <laughs> so do you, do, you, do you get excited? Or do you freak out and try to, try to close, close it? So I remember, I was talking to, do you know Josh Gomar? Sure. So, oh, you know Josh Gomar. So I was talking to Josh Gomar about this, this question. And I, I sat with this question for a, some good time in a lot of pain. And I was talking to Josh, and I was really just like, like Josh, like I, whatever, we were really talking about it. And he said to me, he said, I really hope you don't just settle with an answer. Because he, he knew that I wanted an answer so freaking bad. And when I called him after about a week and a half, I'm like, Josh, I got an answer. He's like, okay, I'm happy to hear it, but I don't trust it. Because <laughs> people aren't open. They lie about it. That's what I mean when I say open. I don't mean you go out and you say, hey, is anybody here that I can hug? That's not, I don't mean be a tree hugger and wear sandals. I, I mean have an openness to letting life present itself. And whatever it does. But, and, and it, I understand, but, but being open, you can completely go against so much. Yeah. Hundreds valuable things that are completely connected to uh, Completely opposite connected to So what's your question, Jackie? You don't have a question. You're just venting. You're just venting. <laughs> you don't have a question you're just venting no how are you supposed to how are how can you do that when such a big opposition I don't have an answer that's good enough for you um, all I can say is and these are just things that, that a person either gets to or doesn't get to I, don't, there's no, I can't give you an A to B to C strategy I can't um, I the first and foremost is it's risky, but I would tell you that as a person gets feels that they're extremely trustworthy and they let them and they build a life of being trustworthy and honest and real. Certain times, like like when you approach these scenarios, you have honesty in it, but you have to have a lot of people that you trust around you. They can also go to these scenarios. Like I knew with my question that I was dealing with something that was extremely personal and extremely far-reaching implications. And I need to make sure I can trust my answers on that. So I did, like, I did share it with people that were close to me to like really bounce off. But the answer is, you can't, there is no answer. There isn't. I wish there was. So, so how did you know when you hit on gold or full gold? 
how do you how do you know when you're in love or when you're infatuated? How do you know when you're happy or when you're lying? How do you know any of these emotions? How do you know when you're awake and when you're dreaming? So the the answer is you're like Donnie, get to your point, what are you getting at? Leave out, leave out, leave out the one of alive and dreaming. Let's use happiness okay. and let's use love. Okay. Literally, usually in the last maybe month and a half, I, I experienced something which totally, completely, utterly demolished my view on love and on on infatuation. I can't tell. I can't tell the difference. I, I I understand them. I understand where they come in. I I can't really separate. Okay. So, yeah. So you understand that this is the problem you have with everything in life. How do you how do you ever trust a shot? How do you ever understand the fact that you accepted Judaism as a religion? These are always the thing you come down to, which is how can you trust anything, whether it be knowledge or whether it be experience, as a human being? You're limited. How can you ever trust anything? Listen, Jackie, unfortunately, the only answer I can give you, and it's not an answer, is a person gets to a point where they are always trying to get to the point where they can trust their experiences, and they're always, always, always doubting their experiences at the same time and reevaluating them. And it's a oxymoron in a sense, but it's not. Meaning, the, like the, the example of Matis always gives in terms of how do you know when you're, when you're dreaming if you're dreaming? Right? In a dream, you've had many dreams where you're dreaming and you see yourself dreaming, right? And then you wake up, you're like, oh my gosh, it's a dream in a dream. Yeah. So he always says, like, one thing you know for sure is that when you wake up, you know that that was a dream. Mm-hmm. So the difference between being awake and dream, the second you awake, you know that was a dream. So you're right. If you're always reevaluating your experiences, you might look back and say, I was an idiot. I was a fool. And my bracha to you is that you're always looking back and realizing that about yourself. Because you're always growing and becoming, and becoming bigger. At the same time, <laughs> you're a human being. You have to go through life and, and get to conclusions. And conclusion doesn't mean closing the gate, but it means moving forward. And whether you're being open or being closed, in both cases, you're making conclusions. Don't kid yourself. It's not the openness that, that, that leads to this question. It's being human that leads to this question. And, and there isn't a good answer. Other than that, you, you continue to build a reservoir of, of, of knowledge, of understanding yourself, of awareness, of consciousness that allows you to trust your choices more. And as you don't, you consult with people outside of you who are also objectively caring about you, whether it's your babe, your parents, or your friends. And there's not really much more than that. At least I haven't come across a more concrete answer for you. Yes, Mr. Ohad. <laughs> Just an observation. Your presentation of birth is very similar to that of a mechanically as a shackle. You know, whatever you, um, you bring to the table is what it is. You strip away everything 
I was saying it in terms of of it providing something that you weren't aware of yesterday versus it just being a, an openness to what you previously had. Shabbos is a little different. Shabbos is, I mean, yes, but it's totally different in terms of what I'm referring to in it. The things you become aware of are not the same things you become aware of on Shabbos. But there are similarities in them. But, I mean, is there an afkamin on the two? Or just stam? In in terms of Shabbos, Shabbos is more that your literally your experience of the seventh day will be the outcome of your six days. What I'm saying with Shovim is just in terms of preparing yourself, you won't be ready without having preparation. Meaning that what you prepare is what you're going to end up having. But not you're not experience, you're not on Shabbos. You're experiencing the outcome. You're experiencing what you did on the six days. Part of you're experiencing what you've become, what you how you view life from 24 years for me. I just have to do that. Shovim helps me have a more have farther access to that. Yes, Av. Do we see that in this week's parsha? So I was using in this week's parsha how the highlight thing that we're centered on is is the word to be assume, and I'll show. What do you say? I'll have to think about that and look look closer for you. All right, boys. Hey, what? I'm not good. That's true. Definitely true. I would assume so. I don't want to think about that, but I, I would assume so. Awesome, guys. It was such a pleasure to see everybody. Thank you guys. So- yeah. You're asking why didn't they choose to respond and change themselves? No, why didn't they so I was suggesting that it wasn't a threat to their security of on a physical level. It was a challenge to their entire state of being. And it makes them disgusted with how they're living. And that's not something you can ally with unless you're ch- trying to get out and change. <laughs> okay, this, I mean, this is something that we, we all have. A, I mean, listen, I'm not going to give you a sophisticated answer, but I'm saying this is something that we have, every one of us, in terms of in terms of seeing an objective truth and not responding to it and rather trying to run away or crush it. How often do we laugh at somebody who's doing something real so we don't have to acknowledge it? Right? The good old cynical, the good old cynicism. Oh, nice. Look at that cheer. That was, oh, did he, did he say that idea again? Do you know how many times in Miami I was, I said, oh, is he talking about pleasure? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
What do you say? Every plan too many. It was a pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's great to see you all. Goodbye, Nani. Good night, guys.